1: You're tuned into Exposure, Michigan State student-run news program here live on Impact 89 FM. I'm your host Daniel Razel We've got four great stories for you tonight. We'll be kicking things off with an interview with Professor Dave Dowches, front runner in genetically modified potatoes. From there, we'll sit down with student organic farm representatives and discuss the Rise program as well as their current initiatives. From there, we'll return to an interview with Derek Blalock as he biked over to Indianapolis last week. And we will finish off the show with a conversation with Chris Wright, Michigan mushroom hunter, and the new designer of the certification required here in Michigan. But first, here is your weekly Impact Update. Now it's time for an update from Impact News.
4: Exposure will continue in just a minute, but first... Here's your weekly impact update. Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta has spoken out hours after the Somalia-based militant group called Al-Shahab has threatened another bloodbath in Kenyan cities. He warned that harsh measures will be taken against anyone assisting the terrorists or helping spread radicalism, especially in Islamic schools and mosques. The militant group has claimed responsibility for the attack and killings that occurred in Garissa University College on Thursday. Kenyatta is determined to fight radicalism from spreading. Authorities have put a 220,000 bounty for information leading to the arrest of three of the associates of this coordinated attack. Next, we go to Impact Reporter Erin Martinez with your national news.
1: The state of California is running out of water. Governor Jerry Brown last Wednesday ordered mandatory water use reductions for the first time in California's history, saying the state's four-year drought had reached near-crisis proportions after a winter of record low snowfalls. Governor Brown issued an executive order directing the State Water Resources Control Board to impose a 25 percent reduction on the state's 400 local water supply agencies, which serve almost 90 percent of California residents. Governor Brown said the state would impose water use restrictions on golf courses and cemeteries and require that non-potable water be used on median dividers. Reporting for the Impact Update, I'm Erin Martinez.
4: Now we move on to our Impact reporter, Quinn Hoffman, with your music news.
2: This week, Capital City Film Festival kicks off with a red carpet premiere party this Thursday, followed by a show at The Loft later in the night featuring Owen, Empire, Empire, in American Opera. This film festival will continue with a screening of the film *Slow West* and then a short film collection, including *Cycle*, *I Am Possible*, *Queen*, *Muck*, and more. Passes can be found at their website at CapitalCityFilmFestival.com. Other shows this week include *Tiger's Jaw* with opener Lemuria and Somos at the Pyramid Scheme tomorrow night, as well as Joe Hurdler and the Rainbow Seekers at the Loft this Saturday as a continuation of the Capital City Film Festival. With your music news, I'm Quinn Hoffman.
4: And now, for your local news, we have impact
5: reporter Audrey Matus. Traction, a Lansing-based creative group that hosts corporate websites, discovered a security breach through Bigby last week. Bigby states that the breach possibly exposed customers' names, addresses, phone numbers, email addresses, and employment histories. It is believed that less than 20% of their registered customers were affected. Users' financial information, including credit card, bank account, and social security numbers, were not affected. Bigby is linking the leak of Information to when customers registered a frequent customer card or applied for a job at its corporate website, www.bigby.com. Traction has since reported the breach to law enforcement agencies. Customers with questions should call 482-8145 or email feedback at bigby.com. For your local news, I'm Audrey Matuse.
4: This has been your weekly impact update. I'm your anchor, Nina Rao. Now back to Exposure.
1: You can join the conversation by following us on Twitter at impact underscore exposure. Up next, we sit down with Professor Dave Douches, who has devoted most of his life to researching genetically modified potatoes. And now before he sat down with us for his interview, his daughter called him and said, Dad. You realize that you've gone your whole life without calling us tater tots. I'm uh, sitting down here with Professor Douchess,
2: uh, who is a professor in the Department of Plant, Soil, and Microbial Sciences. Is that right? That's correct. Um, so recently there was an NPR story that looked at your work in uh, genetically modified potatoes. Um, can you tell us a little about this?
3: Yes. Yeah, so uh, this the past few years we've uh, helped— the company Simplot Plant Sciences uh, test and evaluate their uh, GM potatoes that they've been developing, and one of the potatoes that's made it to the market recently is a potato that has less bruising or black spot bruising, and also doesn't um, turn brown when it's like exposed to uh, to the to the air, and it also um, produces. Less acrylamide as a byproduct when when converted into French fries or potato chips.
2: So, uh, and this was all accomplished through genetic engineering. Correct. Um, but there's a little controversy with uh, that term, and you know specifically this this uh, product, right? Uh,
3: well, correct. Well, I, I would say that the term terminolo- terminology that's been used, uh, genetic engineering, GMO, and all that, somehow creates a lot of uh, you know negative uh, feelings in people because I think people are just a little scared about uh, people manipulating their food. And, and so for somebody like me whose career I've been uh, manipulating potatoes in various ways, we make crosses with potatoes and create new genetic combinations. And we've added in the, the biotechnology of genetic engineering to Uh, create new combinations of potatoes and so for us it's a it's a pretty uh, natural thing that we do in the lab and in the greenhouse uh, to uh, create these plants and evaluate them and so it's not uh, something that that scares us because we know um, kind of the the parameters and limits of the technology so uh,
2: this is a potato that you've modified to make it uh, bruise less uh, brown less and it's uh, safer for us, right? Correct. Yes. Um, but the issue is that it's just hit the market, but there's concerns it won't get bought. Is that right?
3: Well, I I think there's it. It has to kind of test the commercial commercial waters, I guess, to say. And so, well, first of all, we didn't actually develop the product that came to the market at, at Michigan State. We've just helped them test this one. We've in our lab we've created a lot of other combinations similar to that, and also. But to take it to market is a kind of a massive undertaking that costs uh, a lot of money to go through the regulatory process. So, so we've kind of helped them uh, collect the data and evaluate it, and in an unbiased way. The universities kind of provide that type of uh, service to some of the private sector, uh, so that the data can be uh, used by the regulators. And so, um, so what's what's interesting about this product is that. It's it actually is safer for the consumers, but what, but most of the products that have come out so far haven't been directly consumed by people. It's been more of corn and soybeans and oils that that end up in products rather than something you consume directly. And so the is now something that's sitting right in front of you and it's genetically engineered. So it's it, there's a certain uh, uh, different. Um, uh, threshold that we're crossing now with this with this product, so I think it it scares little people that oh now we've got this these direct products that we're going to be consuming, but in reality there's there's an irony to this because genetic engineering um, has been tested by scientists around the world, or I should say the technology and the different products that have come out from genetic engineering, and they they've been deemed safe and they've been on the market for almost twenty years, and we haven't had any Safety issues in terms of human health. Um, there's been some risks associated with the technology in terms of that um, if we overuse the the herbicide resistant plants or the insect resistant plants, that the insects might develop resistance or the weeds will develop resistance. But that's not something we didn't uh, didn't expect. That that's a that's a management issue. But the, for there's been no safety issues from a human health perspective that have been associated with this despite being in our food supply for almost 20 years so
2: yeah you just mentioned the uh, the uh, herbicide uh, proof weeds or insects uh, that could come from these GMOs a lot of people worried about this a while ago with the wheat um,
3: so that's you're telling me that's not a threat at all with these potatoes uh, no well so uh, so the technology that that was put into the potatoes is is really something that is silencing some genes for um, uh, for the bruise pathway and the um, uh, amino acid pathway for asparagine, and so essentially what's happening is these potatoes, um, when they're when they're fried, don't uh, create uh, some byproducts that are that have some toxicity in them. So there, uh, so the irony of it all is, is that the that the People are scared about the technology and are afraid to eat it. But actually, this, this technology is making the potato safer from a process, processed point of view, and lowers that acrylamide forming potential. So, uh, but on the other side is people are unaware of what acrylamide is and, and how much is in the food products, <clears throat> and it's, and so that that should be maybe uh, more of a concern. However. Acrylamide's been in the food supply for as long as we've been um, frying foods or baking foods. It's found in wheat, it's or in um, I said wheat products like bread. Found in coffee. It's found in um, and also also in your cereals. So it's 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 in the it's in the food supply. But um, now what I what I feel is, is really honorable is that the potato industry has found a way to reduce the acrylamide forming potential through the technology.
2: So uh, the phrase GMO is kind of a dirty word in current society. Uh, You know, a lot of people feel like that means it's overprocessed, that it's, you know, become unhealthy. Um, But you're kind of saying here that it's, you know, swapped here, that the idea, the GMO got a bad rap from some things that were happening, but GMOs can be
3: used to become more healthy. Correct, yeah. And so there's actually more products coming down the pipeline. But it, it's that's I think the power of the technology is that some of the um, low hanging fruit that's helped the um, has helped the farmers first, you know. So in terms of managing weeds or managing insects, and I think I kind of look at insect resistant plants as really having societal benefit because it's doing what I've been striving to do with my breeding work is to develop uh, plants that are more uh, insect or disease resistant. So you're reducing the amount of fungicides or insecticides that are applied to the crop and and so that's a that's a major impact so uh, so that's helping but it's something that we don't see directly in front of us it's it's um, but if you were to go and look in the at the numbers and you saw pesticide reductions in the U.S. and in some parts around the world it's been amazing Um, but uh, now we're starting to get the technology is advanced enough that we're now getting some consumer products and so this um, Kind of lower acrylamide forming potato the bruise resistant well, is um is I think something that that helps the the consumer and it also uh, reduces the amount of waste that goes into uh, you know preparing the food because people don't cut away all the bad parts that are that are bruised up now that they're they're not bruising like they used to. do you think that some people
2: are getting um afraid of this kind of stuff uh because you know something went wrong early on the whole idea with the wheat so that was a little bit of a scare but do you think maybe some of the real issues is uh they feel like maybe you're playing god have you heard
3: heard that term thrown at you before yeah i've heard that and i don't i don't think it's that i i think it's more of just the uh, the the sense of the unnaturalness of it it's not something that we that we've been able to always do it's something that occurs in the lab um and so it's it it's not something that that people can kind of grasp and, and feel comfortable with, and uh, however you know the, the, the genetic engineering technology has been used for microbes and it's helped in the in the uh, medical fields to produce insulin. It's it's um, helped in making actually the cheeses that we uh, that we produce. So um, it's just taking it up to the whole plant level rather than at the microbial level.
2: So do you think any of the uh, fear is just because it's kind of unknown and new? Do you think that's I, where it's coming from?
3: Yeah, I think that uh, there's this kind of, you, you have like a gut reaction and it, it doesn't feel natural. And so it, it takes some uh, some time to think about it and study it and and then you can maybe develop a comfortableness to it. I think that this is common in a lot of uh, uh, things in society. There's a lot of technology out there that um, people were a little slow to grasp. You know i'm a, I'm a little older than you and uh when uh when I was a, a teenager in the 70s, the microwave oven came along and people were afraid of microwave ovens and and, and people weren't really sure whether they should have them in their homes and uh, and there used to be signs on the microwave ovens in stores that if you have a pacemaker and you know we have a microwave oven and I think we've kind of moved past that because I think people have seen the you know look at the risks and benefits and say well maybe there really isn't many risks it, it was just maybe a little bit of overthinking the uh, not understanding the technology
2: so is that where you see the future of gmos kind of going do you do you think that uh gmos is is going to uh inevitably become a part of our society in the near
3: future well it um in certain crops, it's the major component. Like in our corn, corn, wheat, cotton, canola, it's it's there and um, and as a major component. And so it's now uh, moving into maybe some of our other food products that we may eat directly. But so I think it's um, as people uh, understand the technology and get comfortable with it, uh, and and there's benefits. If there's benefits, then then it's gonna it'll it'll win out and and become part of our uh, kind of common way of of uh, producing new genetic combinations. It's not the only way. It's just part of the one of the tools that we have. Awesome. Thanks so much for talking with me. Oh, uh, you're welcome, Quinn.
1: You can join the conversation by following us at Impact underscore Exposure over on Twitter. Up next, we sit down with a couple of representatives from Student Organic Farm, Alexis Hinson, a student. And Lori Thorpe, the woman who started it all, will be discussing the RISE program as well as her current initiatives over at the farm. You're tuned into Exposure here on Impact 89 FM. I'm your host, Dana Rizel, and I'm here today with uh, Alexis Henson and Lori Thorpe from the Student Organic Farm. If you want to go ahead and uh, introduce yourselves.
0: Hi, I'm Lexi Henson, and I work for the RISE program here at MSU, and we are here to talk about our pastured pigs or organic pigs here at Michigan State on our Student Organic Farm and a couple other cool projects going on in our RISE program.
6: Hi, I'm Lori Thorpe, and I'm the director of the RISE program, and I have the privilege of working with students like Lexi, who are interested in food, food and farming, sustainable food systems. Um, So we're going to talk to you a little bit about what's going on at the Student Organic Farm, as well as at the Bailey Greenhouse and Urban Farm.
1: Great. Now, uh, how, how did you first get started over at the farm, Lori?
6: I came to MSU in 2002, and my background is in ag education, and so I was in ag and environmental education. I was really interested in places where students could engage in experiential learning, around food, ecology, food systems. And at the time, we had a couple of undergraduates. The farm did not exist then, I should Mm -hmm. say. It was a vision that several students had for a place where they could learn about food systems in a different way than the college was currently offering. And at that time, there really weren't any courses being offered in small, sustainable food systems. Um, And so we had uh, a couple students pitch their idea to the W.K. Kellogg Foundation at the time, they had a call-out for proposals, and so the students wrote a letter to Kellogg um, proposing this idea of having a farm at MSU to demonstrate and for them to engage in small-scale farming. And so I worked with those students to help them make their vision a reality.
1: So it all started with, with you, essentially.
6: With and, me and with a couple other well, colleagues and, a of <laughs> and, a, and st- lots of students w- that had a vision for the farm.
1: Well, incredible. And, uh, and how about you, Alexis?
0: Um, I came here to MSU three and a half years ago, almost four years ago, I think, and I came in as a freshman interested in animal behavior and in working with animals in general. I really wanted to work with cats and dogs, but as a agricultural school, MSU offered pigs and chickens and other livestock animals, and I met Lori through becoming a part of the RISE program, which is the residential initiative on the study of the environment, and it's an awesome living learning program based in Bailey Hall, um, where we have a great Uh, urban farm there too organic greenhouse right outside the dorm um and I lived there and my freshman year I began you know really getting connected with Lori well and going out to the farm um almost weekly and becoming a part of our pig project and eventually I just kind of worked my way up to loving it so much I wanted to manage it and make it you know really organized and really great. And we have a lot of students involved now and it's a really fun activity.
1: Oh, great. And uh, and um, so I guess back on, on top of uh, the student organic farm, what are kind of the, the main projects that you got going on right now? I know you talked about the organic uh, pig, not the, the pasteurized pigs, but the pastured <laughs> pigs. pigs. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. So we have our organic pastured pig project, which Lori started years ago, almost seven or eight years ago at this point, and we're going into our fifth season of Farrowing um, this week. When the Sayers, it'll be this week. And um, that's really exciting for us because it means it's around the clock watching our mamas, waiting for them to give birth, um, having piglets be born and, you know, eventually start scampering around the farm. And it's a great. Ordeal, we have over 20 Rye students involved on it, 20 or 30 involved going on around-the-clock shifts. So after the piglets are born at our farm, we need to make sure that, you know, they're safe and healthy and, you know, everything is going well for the first 72 hours. So we have Mm -hmm. Rye students that want to be involved in animals and animal behavior, a lot of pre-vet students out there, and they monitor the piglets for those first 72 hours um, to avoid things like accidentally being crushed on by the moms or something like that. Our program is really great because it focuses on getting animals back out onto the land. And one of the things that, the freedoms that we have with doing that is bringing these incredible first time moms out to our farm. Um, So a first time pig mom is called a gilt. And that means that they've never given birth before. So these moms that we bring out have never given birth before. It's all a little bit new to them. And it's new to a lot of our students, which is great because it's an incredible learning experience all around. Mm. Um, but that also means because they haven't given birth before, they sometimes can have a little bit more difficulty getting the hang of it. And our students are out there just to give them that a little bit extra, you know, well-being and love out there to make mm-hmm. sure everything goes well.
1: And, uh, you know, that, that brought up something that, you know, I was thinking of earlier uh, you know, about asking questions about your food. I've noticed that recently in supermarkets you're starting to see more of this this uh, organic food movement, and I understand that's something that you're also working over with the the piglets, correct? Correct. So what's kind of some of the, I guess, like the regulations that go into place into truly making something organic? Sure.
6: I'll start, and then I'll let Lexi practice some of uh, <laughs> her great knowledge that she's got now. So first step is the, the mothers, the sows, or in this case, gilts, first-time mamas, have to be in an organic system for the last third of their gestation. So we moved them out of the swine farm from MSU here um, on February 28th. Um, the gestation period for a pig is three months, three weeks, and three days. So we're in the home stretch here. But that's mm-hmm. the first step is they have to have their last third of their gestation in an organic system. Um, their feed also has to be certified organic. And so our food, um, the food source for those animals is purchased from a... Um, a supplier that is um, raising organic oats and organic, or excuse me, organic um, corn and soy. Um, and that also means that the the, the food source is non-GMO, non-genetically mm-hmm. modified. Um, and then there are a few other pieces. Do you want to add to that certification?
0: Yeah. So the certification, um, it's... It requires us to also have all of the bedding that they have has to be organic. Um, Pigs tend to eat a little bit of their bedding. It's straw, and sometimes there's also some still, like, live greens in there, and they can eat them. Um, So anything that they ingest needs to be organic. It's important that that's organic. Um, They also have to be out on the land. I think that's an important component. For that last third of their gestation, they do have to be out on organic land. And then once they have the babies, um, so however many babies they have, we work to raise those babies for about the next five months to six months um, on organically and rotating them through our organic fields. Mm -hmm. So they're all exposed, you know, really they're going in and rooting up all our perennial weeds and roots um, in our fields that we aren't um, sowing right now and growing on. And, their job is to till all that land up for us and, you know, so we can go and plant on it and to fertilize it mm-hmm. and um to so we can go plant on it the following year and have it be really great and, you know, fertile land to use. Mm-hmm. Um as far as making our pigs organic, it also is required that they go to an organic processor, which isn't always easy. Um, There's only, I believe, two organic processors here in Michigan, and neither are relatively close to us. Um, And that is a little bit of a struggle just because the Procuring of meat is also different for in an organic system, and it's really depending on what you prefer. But it is slightly different than um, traditional procuring of meat, so it can just taste different um, mm-hmm. a little bit as well. Um, after that's done, so when we look to go to a processor, we don't necessarily look for it to be certified organic, but we look for it to be um, really welfare-based. So we right. choose a processor based on how they're treating their pigs, and that day and a half period that our pigs are there for the last, um, small, very, the very last portion of their life, the day. day and a half. But, Studies show that levels of stress um, in the pigs can actually really damage the meat if they're really stressed for that last day and a half. Yeah, because of levels. What is it levels of? I don't remember. Certain levels of hormones in the body. Mm -hmm. Adrenaline. Yeah,
6: the fear hormone. Can
0: really damage the meat and make it way less quality. So when we go to a processor, we look at how they're slaughtering their animals and, you know, the conditions that they're being kept in for that last day that they're alive. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really important to us. And that might not necessarily. So then the other portion of that is it's troubling because then we don't necessarily get the certified organic stamp if they're not certified organic as a processor. Mm. That typically when we've sur- surveyed people that buy our meat is not what is most important to our um, our the people that purchase our meat. Mm-hmm. Um, so... What's most important to them when we've done surveys is that they can they know how the animal is being raised and that it's being raised in really great conditions as far as their standards go. Mm. Um, as well as the fact that they can essentially meet their meat. Um right. they can <laughs> they can come to our farm, they come our CSIR our community supported agriculture group in the summer. We almost always have people coming back and looking at our pigs and you know, either taking their kids back to see our farm, which is mm. incredible. It's such a great learning experience. And um, the fact that they get to see how their meat is being raised literally through the five months that it's being raised before it's, you know, going home with them.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So those are some of the values that a lot of our um, supporters have. And we work hard to align our values, um, you know, with those values.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I had no idea about the, the whole adrenaline study. That's yeah, that's absolutely fascinating to me. I would honestly would have never guessed. That's just really interesting to me. You know? Yeah. There's
6: a lot of work If, it, if for the, our audience. There's a lot of work. Um, that's published research um, from a, a very well-known welfare expert. Her name is Temple Grandin. You may be familiar with the film that I came out a few so. years ago, mm-hmm. but that's one of her areas of research, um, and so they, you can read more about that through her work. And we were very lucky last year; she was here at MSU to give a public talk, and um, so. Mm-hmm. But she's her experts. Her her expertise is around um, animal welfare at slaughter.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, now earlier you mentioned. Uh, uh, some of the farming produce that you do over at the farm. So do you guys make produce for the, the general community? Do you yeah, there's sell lots it to of the campus yeah. or?
6: so last week was the first uh day of last Thursday. No, this, this Thursday, Thursday yeah. This Thursday was the first day of farm stand. Mm-hmm. So if people wanna visit the farm stand, it's right there on farm lane um Ring by the rock. rock. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. And um gosh, we also our product can be found in many of the dining halls, so Bailey Greenhouse and Urban Farm, as well as SOF, you can see the product in Snyder Phillips, in Brody, um, Landon, up on West Circle, all buy product from us, as well as the Kellogg Center State Room, mm-hmm. and we're deeply grateful for those partnerships. One of the things that it allows our students to understand what does it take as a farmer to um, sell to an institution which is very different than selling to a farm stand. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's really important for our student farmers to learn all the different ways that they can sell their product. Um, So, yeah, look for our our product on the salad bar over in Brody Square or in Veg Out or Mm -hmm. um, over in that great salad that they make over in Snyder
1: Phillips, too. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, So uh, what kind of product do you put out then from the farm? Oh, wow. That's a long list. That's a long list. the the seasonal. You just can pretty much
6: go A to Z. We grow over 80 different um, fruits and veggies. Yep. At the farm, certainly. So the important
0: thing I think to remember too is that it's seasonal food. So our CSA members are getting, they're one of the few people I think that are getting seasonal food um, throughout the year. And that means that they're not getting strawberries in December and they're not getting of raspberries course. in March. Mm-hmm. They're getting them in the summer when mm-hmm. they grow here in Michigan. Um, and it's reducing the carbon footprint because it's being, it's traveling less than a mile or sometimes, you know, two miles from our farm to their house rather than farms in California, our farms, right. you know, across the globe, really farms in Mexico to their house, um, which is a really large issue you know it's something that like i said our our people value and our supporters value um so you know they might be getting their summer squash in summer and then the winter squash in winter and lots of kale in the summer and you know it's there's a, so many different greens and veggies <laughs> that we grow out there it's really the list goes on
1: now and i understand that you also uh produce tea for the tea room over at the kellogg center yeah what's, that's, what's that that's about a pretty
6: exciting new project yeah um I'm, I'm a big tea drinker myself, so fabulous. as soon as I, I heard
1: about this, I, you know, yeah. I became instantly interested. Exactly. in
6: Exactly. So we're really excited about that. Um, Jory Beadle and Allison Stawara and Sarah Snyder have been working all the semester um, with our partners over in the Kellogg Center State Room, and um, they are going to be featuring our tea for the very first time in two weeks at an event that they're going to have. They do afternoon teas over there. Mm-hmm. Um, they have two blends that will be featured. And one is a zingy blend, and the other one I think they call, I'm drawing a blank on the name of the tea, but they're all teas that have been grown over at Bailey Greenhouse and Urban Farm. Mm-hmm. And they determined what they wanted to put into those. So there's some chamomile, and there's some mint, and there's some lavender. Um, they did it, the, it was all student driven. They did some lots of different tea tastings. They w- then took what they decided were the best over to let the chefs do a tasting on them. And um, so That's that's brand new, hot off the press. And Mm. then the other cool thing is we're going to have a packaged tea, a tea bag, um, that tells our story, and that is going to be in the rooms in the Kellogg Center. Mm. So in the little coffee service or tea service that you find in a hotel room, the Bailey tea, the Bailey blend will be up in those rooms. And we have a packaging student that designed the package. Then our our hort students, you know, worked on the blend. It's all Mm -hmm. grown. It's it's certified organic, which is really exciting.
1: Absolutely incredible! Yeah, yeah, as soon as I heard about that, I'm going yeah. to stop over at the Kellogg sometime. And then we have another pretty, <laughs> pretty exciting
6: project that Lexi um, received a grant for. I'm not. I won't. I'm going to just give you the prelude here. She wrote a grant about a year ago to the Office of Campus Sustainability. Want to give a shout out to them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we are officially going to launch that project next week. Lexi's going to tell you about it.
0: Yeah, our project is um, bringing honeybees onto the green roof at Bailey Hall. Um, Oh, yeah. I think I heard about this. Yeah. 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 And it's it just got, you know, we put all the paperwork through over the last eight months and we got our final stamp of approval this last week and they are officially going on the roof next week. So we'll be introducing two um, new honeybee colonies to the roof um, of Bailey Hall which is really exciting because it'll give so many students a chance to understand what it means to keep honeybees and understand the importance they um, serve in our ecosystem, Mm -hmm. as well as the importance they serve for us to be growing food, all the foods that we've been talking about here. Um, Because without honeybees, we really couldn't do it. Um, Mm -hmm. It would be very, very difficult. So yeah, that project is going to launch this week and we'll be continuing it through the summer and fall and keeping them up there as long as, as long as we can.
1: Sounds great. And, uh, Fortunately, I have a few minutes left here today, but uh, so there's a couple more questions. Um, So who who can get involved with the Student Organic Farm? Is this really open to all majors? Is this more based around students who can get involved in the RISE program, or what's?
6: Lots of ways, so for students that wanna volunteer out at the Student Organic Farm, um, go to the MSU Student Organic Farm website, and there's a tab that says volunteer. And click on that tab, and there's a form that we like students to fill out so that we know a little bit about you and also mm-hmm. know about your schedule. And then you submit that to our farm staff, and we review it, and then we get back to you on, on that. We have a similar situation for the Bailey Greenhouse and Urban Farm. There's a place on our website that you can click to um, see both when volunteer times are available and to notify us that you're interested in volunteering. Mm-hmm. Um, so both places and we're, we um, are welcoming students from all colleges, all majors to get involved with that. It doesn't, you don't have to be in the College of Ag and that resources to, mm-hmm. to be um, able to volunteer with us. Yeah. As far as the RISE program, we're, uh, we serve six colleges. So we're pretty open to, uh, I like to say, from anthropology to zoology. <laughs> uh, and with that, students can earn a minor in environmental and sustainability studies. They don't have to have lived with us their first year here, but certainly incoming uh, students that are thinking about coming to MSU, they might want to consider that if, if that's a, um, an area of interest for them, they can live together that first year in Bailey Hall mm-hmm. with us in the RISE program.
1: Great. Well, uh, that was actually all I had uh, for the two of you today, unless there's anything yeah. else that you wanted to add in.
0: No, I don't think so. But yeah, we thank some thank awesome you. people out here. And it's been a great thank you for letting us come in and talk a little bit about it's great what having we're two doing of you right in. now.
1: Yeah, I guys have a lot of really great stuff going on Thanks. right now. Yeah. It's a,
0: it's... So we'd love to update you in the fall and let you know how it's all gone. Yeah, I'd <laughs> yeah, love to have you on again. Yeah, yeah
1: well, uh, Alexis and Lori, thank you for coming in today.
0: You're so welcome. Thank You're you, welcome. Daniel.
1: You can follow us on Twitter at impact underscore exposure to join the conversation and keep up with everything that we publish over on impact89fm.org. To continue, we've got an interview with Derek Blaylock, who came in last week uh, discussing his upcoming trip to Indianapolis, 250 miles. And he's here again tonight to discuss the aftermath and how that trip went for him you're tuned into exposure here on impact 89 fm i'm your host Dana Rizel, and i'm here with derek blaylock he's here again and uh how about just go ahead and introduce yourself and uh what you've been up to for the past couple of days hey guys uh, i'm derek blaylock i'm a advertising se- senior at michigan state
7: and uh i just got back from uh biking to indianapolis for the final four um got back friday or sunday excuse me um
1: so I'm back and it was a lot of fun, a lot yeah. of
7: hard work, but uh it was a good time.
1: Yeah, and I I'm excited to to dive into that, but you know, before we get into that, um I guess just to do a quick recap of uh for those of our listeners who missed a, last week's interview. Um so Derek, you biked two hundred and fifty miles from here in Lansing, correct? Correct. Um, all the way over to Indianapolis and it was for uh your your cause biking for Tommy sorry do you want to talk about that for a bit yeah definitely I was uh doing it to raise money for uh the
7: Thomas Smith Memorial Foundation which is a foundation from uh my hometown of Flushing Michigan um it was founded after one of my buddies uh passed away my senior year of high school um due to an enlarged undiagnosed enlarged heart and uh um, it was kind of a prelude to my uh, summer trip, um, which will take me sixty five hundred miles um, across the U S. Um, to raise money for the same cause. So it was a good, uh, good thing to raise awareness um, across not only the state but the country as well. Um, the story got picked up a couple um, different states, as far as Washington, mm. Oregon, Arizona, wow. and uh, um, uh, Alabama. So. It was kinda of cool to see um things like that. But uh yeah, I'm definitely excited for my summer trip after that one. Um it was like I said earlier, it was a lot of hard work, but it was uh, fun seeing a lot of the back roads and stuff mm-hmm. of uh Michigan and Indiana. Sure.
1: So. Now uh now I mentioned I remember last week that you mentioned that uh you never really did anything on the scale before. Uh as far as I guess your biking career goes. So you know what what was it like to bike two hundred and fifty miles all the way over to Indianapolis?
7: Yeah, it was uh it was a lot of fun. Um Wednesday, I mean, I, I've biked about fifty miles before, so Wednesday was nothing new to me. But uh um Thursday ran into a bit of rain early in the morning, but uh, I got through it and uh it started raining around one o'clock again on Thursday, so um the rain definitely sucked. Um got me <laughs> soaked. But uh Thursday uh like afternoon I ran into a lot of um just great people around Fort Wayne Indiana and they were very hospitable um to me and stuff and uh just great people um that I met that day as well um and Friday uh it was it was a little foggy I had a little hiccup in the morning took me uh, forever to get out of Fort Wayne just mm-hmm. cuz my directions and stuff um ran into some more rain in the afternoon around 3 but uh, I was finally able to get uh to Anderson Indiana and um ride to uh Indianapolis the next day so mm-hmm. um it was it was fun um it was kind of tough being on the bike for so long um after never like for four straight days <laughs> for at least 50 miles each day basically so um it was a different experience, but um, I'll tell you, standing up for the first game the Michigan State game was mm. probably one of the hardest things I've done in a while, <laughs> and that's just that, like, that's, that had nothing to, uh, compared to, uh, the bike ride, I, I was struggling that first half, so I had to <laughs> get an energy drink and kind of rebound, uh, keep cheering, um, so it was a lot of fun, mm. but, uh, my legs definitely, uh, after, taking Sunday
1: off, uh, my legs definitely uh, feel a lot better. So mm-hmm. uh, so I, I imagine, I mean, of course, what I'm getting here is that it was very physically challenging. Yeah. But, uh, did you have to have kind of, I guess, a mentality to push through it? Something that just, like, you were thinking in your head that, like, I just got to do this. Like, mentally, how did you stay focused, you know, on getting to Indiana? Um,
7: the music helped a little bit, but uh, I borrowed my buddy's iPod, and mm-hmm. I'll tell you, his music was not my... my <laughs> I guess he hadn't used it since like middle school and I can tell because it was was just awful. So, like, I don't know. Like, I just, yeah, I kept basically saying it wasn't really, it wasn't really like hard on my legs or anything. It was more, this is going to sound weird, but more my butt because after like Thursday or Friday, my butt was just killing me. So I was like, (laughs) all right. So uh i just kind of pushed through it but uh what sucked the most was uh friday when his iPod died cuz i had no music so i was uh i was singing uh mac miller um his song knock knock on repeat for like the last three <laughs> hours so that kind of sucked then uh this is going to sound even more weird but uh like when i was riding the back roads uh in indiana i smelled like toast like three hours left on Friday. I smelt toast and I couldn't stop smelling it for the last three hours. I'm just like, what? So when I settled down that night, I, I went to the waffle house nearby. I was like, I ordered, Hey, I was like, Hey, uh, can I get some toast? She was like, well, do you want anything? No, I just, I kind of want toast. Like, I don't know what it was, but, uh, I just had that smell in my, uh, head for all day. So, um, I had some toast and sure. uh, some biscuits and gravy. Um, But it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, Biked about 40 miles to Indy. Um, Mm -hmm. It was also weird because I went, the ride went um, basically without a hitch. Um, Not really many problems or anything. Um, Mm -hmm. No flat tires, which I can't believe because Indiana's roads are just as bad as Michigan's. I'll tell you that right now. Um, But. I was eight miles from Lucas Oil, and I'm crossing. Uh, I have a green light, and I'm riding, like, next to this truck. And he turns, and I keep going straight. And this other car coming from the other way, um, she was, like, smoking or something, wasn't paying attention, and I almost get hit from, wow. like, eight miles away. I was, <laughs> I was like, oh, thank God, because that would have sucked uh. to get uh bike for four days and get hit by a car the last day that would have sucked but uh um nothing too bad uh I mean on Friday I crossed a uh wooden bridge it was slick because it was foggy and uh there was a lady in front of me and I put on my brakes and I kind of fishtailed, and I fell down in my handlebar so mm-hmm. I gotta get a new handlebar oh, as man. Well,
1: but now <laughs> so the, the the iPod thing you know that's Cracked me up a bit. Now, let's say you had your own your own iPod there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess what what would you have been listening to? I would have been listening
7: to uh, a lot of country, a lot of country, yeah. big country fan. But a uh, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of like '90s music, and I would have had uh, some classic rock and Frank Sinatra for. I I love Frank Sinatra, and uh, yeah. I would have listened to him just for a little bit. But I uh, I mean he he had some. Like 90s music, which was a little like fine, but Uh there's way too much dubstep and uh, techno stuff that I was just like, (laughs) I'm just like, okay, you can stop anytime now. But uh, it was, it was fine. Um, Honestly, any music was better than no music. Mm -hmm. And I was smelling freaking toes. I'm just, I'm still baffled at that. I'm just, I don't know what was going on, but uh, maybe I was just too tired and just imagining breakfast at that point. So.
1: Um, I just have, uh, only a couple more questions for you today, but, um, so you're talking about taking like the back roads and also, you know, going through traffic. So what was kind of, I guess your main, I guess, path of travel on the trip? Were you mostly on the back roads or were you going alongside on the highways or what? For most of the way it was back
7: roads, but, uh, on Saturday, I just decided to go on this, like, not the expressway, but this main highway, I think mm-hmm. it was like Indiana 36 like 67 and that was so much easier because it was basically a straight shot from where i was at to indy Uh so like it was so much easier because i didn't have to make 20 different turns and keep looking at the direction so um i'm gonna take a look at that for the summer and i'll obviously do like some back roads but after a while Mm -hmm. it was just cornfields for days so i was (laughs) like all right well let's try to mix this up a little bit but uh um, I was actually surprised because um, on, I think it was Thursday, when I was crossing the Michigan-Indiana border, Um, I was on dirt roads for, like, two and a half hours, and I was just surprised at how many um, how much people I saw because really? I've never really noticed, like, that they were around here, so, like, mm-hmm. it never really occurred to me that there would be, which was, I was glad to see because it kind of opened my eyes to a different, yeah. like, um, world like that I've seen like on TV and stuff obviously but so that was kind of cool and I was actually riding past this uh, like school that they had and uh, the kids were just like kind of screaming and waving at me <laughs> and I couldn't really hear him because like uh, the wind and stuff but uh, like I was I was saying hey and stuff so yeah. it was, was kind of cool to see that kind of different perspective of things so
1: yeah, yeah. that's interesting yeah um so I guess, uh, yeah, let's just do a, a little recap here of, uh, again, for anyone that might have missed last week's show. So you've got this trip coming up this summer. Um, yeah, I guess let's just do kind of a, a rundown. When, where, you know, what
7: what yeah, are the trip's so, all about. Um, I'm starting probably May 18th. I might have to do a couple days earlier because I was looking at the route and just might have to start a couple days earlier. But uh, mm-hmm. I'm starting um around May 18th um in Charleston South Carolina where where my family uh lives now um in South Carolina and I'm going to go up the east coast to New York um down through Pennsylvania Ohio up to Lansing um down to Indianapolis um across the Midwest to like through Kansas and then Colorado mm-hmm. um I actually have a Um, event in Colorado scheduled already for June 19th, where I used to work for the minor league baseball team out there. Mm -hmm. Um, then from there, I'm gonna go through the mountains, um, which I'm a little nervous about, but uh, uh, down to like LA and hope maybe San Francisco because I did get a tweet from uh MSU alumni uh, out in San Francisco, and Mm -hmm. she was like, If you come through San Francisco, We'd love to meet you, get uh, meet you, and uh, so I might have to do that because yeah. I I love meeting with MSU alumni. Yeah, um, probably my favorite thing to do. Um, then I'm gonna go th- through the South, um, Arizona, Texas, and stop for three days, uh, roughly, in Dallas, and finish the home stretch um, through Alabama, Georgia, and. South Carolina, ending in uh, Greenville, South Carolina. So, and now, uh, what? When are you expected to to be back? Roughly, uh, early August. Okay. More probably like first couple days of August. So, sure. um, two and a half months. Um, close to seven thousand miles. Got a
1: lot of work Carnival. to do. For listeners out there who are interested in donating to the cause, uh, where can they go to?
7: Yeah, definitely. You can uh, go to uh, bikefortommyshart dot com. Um, there are donate buttons, um, one at the very top and one on the main. Uh, there's two on the main pages. Then you can go click on the donate page and um, donate there. Um, I'm also on Facebook. Um, if you go to facebook.com slash bike for um, the number four Tommy's heart, um, you'll go to my page there. And I'm also on Twitter, which is at biking for Tommy and my instagram is derek underscore blaylock so um you can follow my trip there um i've gotten a lot of people um looking forward to my like stories from the trip and yeah there's a there's a lot of cool cool stories um so you can read about that on my blog at uh biking for um tommy or
1: bike for tommy's com. so all right. all right well incredible thanks for coming on and uh thank you for sure you know after you finish up your trip over the summer we're gonna have to have you on again Yeah, definitely. It, this definitely. is just a, a truly incredible story and coming right out of here from michigan state makes it you know that much more special you yeah know? definitely but uh, so again derek blaylock thank you for coming on today thank you so much we close off the show tonight as we sit down with michigan mushroom hunter and the designer of the new certification acquired for edible mushroom sellers here in michigan chris wright you're tuned into Exposure here on Impact 89 FM. I'm your host, Dana Rizal, and I'm here today with uh, Chris Wright. And how about you go ahead and just introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself.
8: Sure. Well, I'm Chris Wright. Uh, I'm actually a graduate student here at, at MSU uh, in the Department of Plant, Soil, and Microbial Sciences. I uh, am also the Executive Director of Midwest American Mycological Information, which is a program uh, designed, uh, a nonprofit designed to help people uh, I obtained cert- certification to uh, hunt mushrooms and resell them in Michigan, and I'm also the president of Easy Grow Mushrooms and Composting, uh, where I self spawn and and uh, for mushrooms and teach uh, mushroom identification.
1: And you're also a member of the Michigan Mushroom Hunters Club, correct? And I'm, a
8: mem- and I'm a member of the Michigan Mushroom Hunters Club. I've been a member of the Michigan Mushroom Hunters Club uh, for over 20 years.
1: Wow, how how long has the club been? going for is it
8: uh i don't know when the origin when the origination was but it's been going for uh certainly a few decades really and uh, it's going strong uh, it's even uh even picking up in membership it's been going very strong the last few years
1: mm-hmm. and uh about how many members are there in it right now
8: uh i believe there are a couple hundred members uh, wow. statewide yes
1: wow and uh and before our interview you're mentioning i guess kind of the, i guess the culture around this you know what what really is mushroom hunting you know
8: well, mushroom hunting—I uh, mean, in the old days, mushroom hunting was a, an essential foraging technique for survival. Um, these days, uh, people uh, go out and hunt mushrooms because people like to eat them, and and even the ones that aren't edible are pretty interesting in their, you know, just in their form and and uh, the way that they they work in nature. The mushrooms play a lot of uh, important uh, ecological roles in the environment. Uh, they. They're saprophytes, which uh, means they uh, recycle all the litter inputs from plants and stuff and recycle the nutrients they're in. Uh, almost every plant you see has a fungus associated with the roots. Um, so there are mycorrhizal associations. And, uh, and yeah, they, they, it's just a, it's a lot of fun, you know, and, and they have a lot of interesting forms, colors, and morphologies, and, uh, and it's, it's a great family experience.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, here in Michigan, uh, how many different species are we are we talking about?
8: Well, we have twenty-five different, about twenty-five hundred different species. Um, there are probably around sixty or so that people will go and forage for, um, and uh, that are uh, considered safe and edible. There are some poisonous species as, as well, uh, deadly poisonous. Uh, most of the poisonous species uh, will give you like a gastrointestinal type of discomfort. Um, they're not. Deadly poison, but there mm-hmm. are there are quite a few out there.
1: Sure. Um, now, I guess in your experiences with hunting, were there any, I guess, uh, I mean, expeditions, if you will, where it just they kind of stuck out as like a good memory? Just any any times you were out where it just really stuck with you?
8: Um, probably my fondest memory was when I was in Montana and I was hunting morels up on a uh, on a mountainside. So morels, among other things, they're one of the pioneer species after a forest fire. Mm-hmm. And so um, so we had uh, fires that were that lightning strikes that hit the mountains of Montana. And uh, we got the burn maps from the local wildlife agency and then went up there. And there were acres and acres and acres of morels. If you had a lawnmower, you could have just them <laughs> by driving a lawnmower around. But uh, they're great. So that, that was a fond memory.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Now... Uh... Uh, recently, you, you're uh, behind, I guess, the the planning of this new certification that uh, is required for mushroom sellers here. Well, what's kind of the, the story behind that? What's what's Why is it being required now?
8: Well, the, the requirement has actually been in effect. It's been part of the food code of, since 2009. Uh, it seems that the last few years, there's been a lot more interest in foraging wild mushrooms. And so the regulation has stepped up. For example, there's uh, one gentleman up in Maple City, Michigan, uh, Jim Moses, who has been foraging and growing uh, wild mushrooms for probably 20, 25 years and selling them at farmers markets, never had a problem. Two years ago, the health department came up and, and asked him for his uh, certification, proof of certification, to be able to do so. Because in, in Michigan, uh, folks who gather mushrooms and sell them for consumption. Are required to uh, be an approved mushroom identification expert by the state. Uh, so he didn't have the credentials. He contacted the Michigan Department of Agriculture and Rural Development in order to obtain the certification, and uh, couldn't really find a clear path on how to do that. So um, there were some folks who had uh, gotten the certification, and they didn't want to share the, uh, the 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 what loop what jump or what hoops they jumped through to in order to get it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there was a lot of disparity between the haves and the have nots. And, and there were a lot of people that have interest. So I contacted MDARD and said, listen, I'm a mycologist I can help. And we gathered all the state's top mycologists, uh, all the way from Michigan Tech, Houghton up North, uh, down to U of M. And, uh, so I formed a nonprofit with Tim James, who's the uh, professor of mycology at U of M and Greg Benito, who's a new professor here in plant soil microbial sciences. Who's also a mycologist, and we put together a program. So, um, uh, all the information can be found at Midwestmycology.org. That has all the information on the criteria and curriculum uh, required that you have to know, um, and as well as uh, how to register for the workshops.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, uh, what what are the workshops like? What, you know, what will people have to prepare for to get their certification? So,
8: the workshops, uh, as I tell people in the email, and as I put on the site, should be considered a review session. You should come to the workshop uh, prepared to pass the test. So there will be a test at the end of the workshop. You can't teach mushroom identification in a day. Um, there are just a lot of different uh, things you have to know. So um, if you are interested in doing this, go to midwestmycology.org, look at the curriculum and the mushroom study, uh, memorize all that information, be familiar with that. And then the workshops, um, uh, we're going to have three hours in the morning of lectures on uh, the basic biology of fungi, morphological characteristics used to identify mushrooms, and then we're going to go through every one of the 20 different species that we're uh, allowing uh, to be certified. Uh, After that, we'll have lunch, and then uh, we'll have a review session of herbarium specimens and some live specimens, and then there's an optional one-hour study time, and then take the test. And if you pass a test, uh, MDARD will be there on the spot to issue your uh, expert mushroom identification card.
1: Okay. And uh, so, for mushroom hunters out there, uh, say that they they passed the certification, uh, I guess what's kind of their next step after that? Do they just go out, start hunting get mushrooms, the, and they can just the start selling them right away just like that?
8: Yeah. So, uh, so we've only approved 20 different species because uh, there are some dangerous mushrooms out there, mm-hmm. and there are some uh, mushrooms that have poisonous lookalikes. So, there are 20 species that we've identified that are pretty easily identifiable, not mistakable for anything else that might be poisonous or harmful. Uh, so, once people get their uh, cards, they're allowed to go out and uh, start harvesting the mushrooms that are in season. Uh, we start off with morels uh, and also a pheasant back or dryad saddle is another one that comes up. Uh, and there are different mushrooms that appear at different times during the year. The fall is especially uh, plentiful for mushroom gathering. That's when you get a lot of your uh, uh, hen of the woods or maitake mushrooms, uh, the armillarias, a, a bunch of others. So, I so say there's a. There's a progression through the season. Mm-hmm.
1: Now uh, I know over in uh, Boyne City they have the the national uh, the morel mushroom festival. Have you ever made it up there by any chance? Or?
8: Yeah. So I mentioned earlier I, I have a company. I sell mushroom kits for uh, for growing mushrooms, and I've been, I've sold them up there. Um, Jim Bauman is the um, director of the chamber of commerce up there, and uh, he was one of the folks that was uh, mentioned in this article, who was saying that last year they had to import morels from Oregon. Uh, for places that wanted to serve them, not because they didn't have the mushrooms. They just didn't have anyone to certify them. Mm-hmm. So uh, he's happy now. I was just talking to him uh, last week, and uh, he's putting out the word. And so uh, hopefully this year we should have plenty of morels for, for sale mm-hmm. over the festival. There are actually three festivals, morel festivals in Michigan. There's one in Point City. That's kind of the national festival. There's one in Lewiston, uh, Michigan, and another one in Mistic, Michigan. Really? And all are uh, uh, centered around the morel mushroom
1: wow, I had no idea that there's three different mushrooms, you know, and, you know, as as I mentioned earlier, you know, I didn't realize how, I guess, big of a culture there was around mushroom hunting. It's incredible.
8: Yeah, especially, you know, so some Americans tend to be a little fungophobic, but uh, a lot of uh, the folks from Europe and, uh, and other parts of the world, uh, it's part of their culture. And uh, I mean, when I was growing up, uh, my parents weren't really mushroom hunters. As a matter of fact, when they saw a the giant puffball in the backyard, they told me to go kick the thing to get rid of it. <laughs> they didn't realize that by kicking it, I was dispersing the spores, and they kept coming back year after year. So, but, but uh, yeah, it, it, it's a great culture, and it's just, it's a lot of fun. Kids love it. Uh, you know, when kids are young, they're closer to the ground, so they're best, better mushroom hunters than us adults because mm-hmm. they're kind of in the plane, you know, of, of where the mushrooms are growing, so... Um, yeah, it's a great activity for, for all. Mm-hmm. And
1: uh, I guess on that note, uh, how, what kind of advice would you give to new mushroom hunters, people who want to start getting involved in either growing mushrooms or going out and hunting them? What would be kind of your, your first step there to advise those, them with?
8: Those are two different things, but uh, education is the key, most important thing. If you're going to go out and pick mushrooms to eat, then you really know how know, have to know how to identify the mushrooms, and not just in a general sense, but down to species. So if you wanted, if you're in like Southeast Michigan and wanted to uh, to start collecting mushrooms uh, for your table, contact the Michigan Mushroom Hunters Club, and they go out every week and they gather all sorts of mushrooms. and They have they have great experts in mushroom identification, even better than me. You know, guys Mm -hmm. that have been doing it for years, and they're very friendly and very helpful, and they 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 want to teach mushroom identification. So if you want to go out and gather mushrooms, if if you're not in Southeastern Michigan. Just uh, look around for a local mycological club because there's one out in the west coast of Michigan. Uh, I'm sure there are some up north. Uh, even I think there are these uh, meetup groups now. Uh, meetup is kind of like a uh, an online thing mm-hmm. where they have meetups for hiking or whatever. And I've, I've gotten a lot of uh, emails from uh, meetup clubs uh, all across the state that do this. And, and if you don't have one in the area, why not start one?
1: Mm-hmm. Now, that was all I had for you today. I don't know if there's anything else that you wanted to to bring up.
8: No, I just uh, – I want to uh, – I, I do want to mention that uh, we're doing this uh, workshop uh, in association with two other nonprofits. Mm-hmm. That's MIFMA, the Michigan Farmers Market Association, and ISLAND, which is the Institute for Sustainability, Land, Art, and Natural Design. And then, of course, this couldn't be possible if MDARD, or the Michigan Department of Agriculture, and uh, Rural Development, we're not you know, in on it. They gave us uh, a grant to get the program uh, going, and uh, and all the folks that have been involved with in this have been great. So uh, it's going to be a good program. We encourage you to go to midwestmycology.org and check it out.
1: All right. Well, Chris Wright, thank you for coming in today.
8: Thank you very much for having me.
1: All episodes of Exposure can also be found online at impact89fm.org. We also have our Twitter at impact underscore exposure where you can keep up Keep up to date with everything we do here at Exposure, as well as contribute to the conversation. Special thanks to our general manager, Ed Glazer, our station manager, Gabriella Saldivia, and our producer, Quinn Hoffman. You have been listening to Exposure here on WDBM East Lansing, Michigan State's student-run news program, live with your host, Daniel Razel. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to
3: Impact Exposure.